I have a husband who, I, I've never met anybody that reads like my husband, ever. And he will be reading probably three or four books across the board most weeks. And on the long trips, he will take a novel this size. He will read theology, he will read the great classics, he will read the literature that's there about South Africa on the way there. He will read devotional, he obviously will read theology books as well. And I have watched what that has done in the mind and character and ministry of my husband. And of course, I think back to my college days where I, a little student, as I say in God's front door, was staggering towards truth. And a wonderful professor called C.S. Lewis was engaged in teaching medieval history at Cambridge at the same time I was there. I didn't know it, but I was reading his books. And I remember sitting in my little student bedroom with this book that this believer had put in my hands. And it was called The Weight of Glory, one of his earliest books. I don't even know how many he'd written at that point. But C.S. Lewis, in my heritage, was taking on England at the parliament level, at the top evangelical level. He, an atheist, come to faith. And in The Weight of Glory, he has this wonderful, wonderful quote all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor. Think that, think of the words. All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that one day we will get in. As far as I know, that was the first Christian evangelical concept to pierce my heart and turn me towards home. And somewhere I know the angels said to one another, watching me read, she's coming home. And it was the writers, the C.S. Lewis's, the Tolkien's, the McDonald's of my era, and also the classic literature that I was studying at college, pointed the way home. And so when I put this little meager offering of God's front door. I begin it with that story. And that's why I called it God's front door. Because he gave me the concept. There is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world and one day we shall get in. And sitting there I thought, see me, what is this about? A door, the door of death? And my mind began to hurry along the road to the door. And God in his grace opened that door and Jesus walked into my life. Of course, I've never been the same. I'd like to take you to another writer in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. A man who through word power speaks into our hearts and situation of this century. So if you turn to Habakkuk, I'll give you 10 minutes to find it. <laughs> I had the advantage. I could look it up before you. Habakkuk. It's before Zephaniah. <laughs> it's after Nahum. <laughs> Doesn't help, does it? 
It's a minor prophet. And of course, the minor prophets don't mean they're minor in any sense theologically or they weren't as clever as the other prophets or anything like that. It just means the body of their work that we have captured in the body of scripture is smaller than the major body of scripture that is given to us in Isaiah, etc. I want to talk about living one mile high. I want to talk about how we do that. How do we live one mile high above the garbage and the mess in our personal lives and in the life of the church and the life of the world? How do we do that? Habakkuk tells us how. It's all about living above, getting God's perspective. His name means to embrace. And basically the message of this book is this. There is joy, unspeakable and full of glory, in embracing what God calls you to endure. You got that? There is unspeakable joy in embracing, accepting, submitting to whatever burden, and we look at that word, God has called each of us individually to endure. How do I embrace something that's impossible to endure? And with joy? Right, that's what the book's about. Habakkuk was a prophet, he was a Levite. He was a musician. He was probably in the first contemporary music group in the temple. <laughs> he lived at a time in human history when it wasn't really a good time to live in that time of human history. He was a prophetical musical Levite. And many people think, certainly the last piece of Habakkuk, sheer poetry, sheer poetry was put to music. In fact, they believe it was, and it was sung in the temple. And we probably know that's the most familiar bit to all of us of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, for the sovereign Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights. Probably a song that he probably composed the music to and gave to the temple singers. So, let's look at the man. The man who was seeking to be a worship leader in his day and time. The man who was God's voice, who stood in God's presence and heard God's message and disseminated it in his day and age, to the people of God. He was born, you say, at an unfortunate time. Sometimes when you look at a piece of art, a canvas, there's always light and dark. When I took art at college, I would be listening to my art teacher and she would say now on every canvas, there is shadow and there is light and there is this and that. And they would never let us go out and sketch when it was sunshine because sun kills color. And that was easy in England because there was never any sunshine. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time out in the gray and gray is the most wonderful color. It just lights up all the colors. Sunshine kills them. 
And so I would be instructed in art. And I do remember this incredible, brilliant art teacher saying to me, now, art is like a picture of your life. I have no idea where she was coming from. I believe she was a Quaker lady. I, I think she was a Quaker. But she said, art is like a picture of your life. And some of you are living in the light parts, and some of you are living in the dark parts. And again, it was art. It was my art teacher that used the media of art to alert me to truth or ideas that I try to climb up into and get hold of in my own mind. And I asked myself, which part am I living in? Well, Habakkuk was living in the very darkest part of the canvas. He just happened to be born then. But then nobody ever happens to be born then. As I sat in the plane waiting to figure out what had happened on 9-11, and the pilot said he couldn't tell us till he got down in Newfoundland, I wondered about Psalm 139.16. Every day ordained for me is written in your book before one of them comes to be. And then hurrying through with my heart beating hard as we made that emergency landing and he emptied all the gas out into the ocean so it would be safe to land. I started to turn to reference after reference. He is the author of my days. He begins them, he ends them. He numbers my days. And I remember my frightened heart saying, is this the last number? Am I going to see you in a minute? And it wasn't that I didn't want to see him. It's just getting there I worry about. <laughs> <sighs> Every day ordained for you. We are living in exactly the right place, exactly the right time, and you are exactly the right age just as Habakkuk was. Yes, you are. As I struggled over one of my many, 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 many birthdays, <laughs> I can't remember, I think it was my 50th, my husband watched me struggling and sympathetically, you bet, <laughs> tried to help. And I remember this incredible conversation from my bank inspector-minded, pragmatic husband as we began to have this conversation. What's the matter, Jill? Well, I'm 50. Well, we all know that. <laughs> so, I don't want to be 50. Well, you are 50. <laughs> Were you born at the right time? Well, yes. Have you been living at the right speed? Yes. Then you must be the right age. <laughs> don't you hate this? Yes. Then, he says, logically, you'll be dead on time. <laughs> and when I got back from Canada, I reminded him of this conversation. I said, it didn't help me. Because maybe today was when I'd be dead on time. The point is this, you will not live one day after your number's up. He is the author, he is the finisher. So many verses that assure us of this. And so whatever part of the canvas we're living in, it's just right, and you are the right age, and I am the right age, and everybody else is the right age. And you're living in the right house, and you're living in the right town, just 
as Habakkuk was. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unveil the canvas and show the reason why. The black threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. I think of Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you, before Psalm 139, when he wove us together in our mother's womb, he embroidered us in our mother's womb. Before that, so we were known by God, called by God. He had in mind the good works that we were to do, the burden that we needed to bear, the calling we needed to bear. The calling and burden is the same word. He had all that figured out. Now we have the choice to accept that calling and to climb into it and give our life away into it, yes, but he had in mind what was best for us. It's like as parents. You look at your kids and you see their gifting and, 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 you, and you have in mind your desires, your dreams for them. Yes, you could be a doctor, you could be a nurse, you could be an incredible this, you could be an incredible that. Our dreams, our desires, and we'll try and make it possible for you to achieve this. And in hopefully parental wisdom, we see what is best. And maybe we share those things for our children, knowing our children as well. But it's up to the kid whether he realizes what we in our hopefully wisdom see in him and what he's able to do. He has to make the choice. And Habakkuk starts by saying, I made the choice. I have a burden. I have a calling on my life. God called me before I was me to know. He prepared what I had to do before I was ever woven together in my mother's womb. And I'm not talking about big people like Jeremiah and Habakkuk. I'm talking about all of us. Every single one of us has just as much a calling on our life because it's a calling to relationship. He prepared what I had to do before I was ever woven together in my mother's womb. And I'm not talking about big people like Jeremiah and Habakkuk. I'm talking about all of us. Every single one of us has just as much a calling on our life because it's a calling to relationship and discipleship. That's the calling I'm calling about and talking about. We're just ordinary people, but I often so say, and I've said it all my life, all of us in here are ordinary people, but with a great, big, extraordinary God living inside of us. I remember saying that in Holland years ago in Europe, and I was staying with a friend, and they had a little girl, six years of age, and she was around, and her mother dragged her along to hear me speak. It was a Saturday, and she didn't have a babysitter, so the poor kid had to come and sit on the thing and hear this lady speak. And apparently, I used this. This lady was my interpreter as well. And so I used this thing about, we're just ordinary people, but we're ordinary people with a great big extraordinary life living inside us. Well, the little girl apparently took this in, and she went back to school the next day, secular school. <laughs> and the teacher said, well, what's happened, you know, this week, you can tell a story. And she said, well, we have a lady who's living with us, and there's a great, big, extraordinary God living inside of her. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a big bar to live up to, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, ordinary people. 
the Holy Spirit. Great, big, extraordinary God living inside of us. Now, the background to all of this is pretty bad. Israel's northern kingdom has fallen to Assyria. Tiny Judah is left in the promised land. Babylon conquers Assyria and begins to look with greedy eyes on little Judah still surviving. Good King Josiah in little Judah has turned the people back to God. But Josiah's just dropped dead. Why does that happen? The good king just drops dead. And who comes to the throne but evil King Jehoiakim? And the spiritual heart of this little tiny believing remnant left, Israel's gone, Judah is left, begins to crumble and corrupt. And this is Habakkuk's congregation. Well, he has a lot of questions. Do you hear about the kid that asked his father, how old are you, dad, so-and-so? How old are all your brothers and sisters, so-and-so? How many people in the world, dad? I don't know. Well, how, how many this? And how far is the sun, dad, from the earth? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Dad, you don't mind me asking all these questions, do you? And the father said, no, son, how are you going to learn if you don't ask questions? <laughs> right. And Habakkuk began to ask God questions and questions and questions and questions. And he felt that he wasn't getting any answers. Don't know, son. Don't know, son. Don't know, son. Surely, God, you're going to give me some answers. Have you ever asked God questions and you don't feel you're getting a good answer? And so what Habakkuk does is say, I will climb to my high tower. Look at chapter 2. Stand on my watch. I'll station myself on the ramparts. He uses the word watchtower. Around Jerusalem, around the cities of Israel, there was great big walls, if possible, and towers. And the tower was for the watchman. And what was the watchman doing? He was watching for the enemy, yes, but he was watching for the messenger. That was the way you got messages. And Babylon was fighting Assyria and overcoming them and about to become the huge world power that it became. And so messengers would come to little Judah who was thinking, what's happening with these two big giants over here and we're going to get in trouble one way or the other. And a messenger would come and say, Assyria's winning or Babylon's winning. And so the man would stand on the watchtower and wait for the messenger to hear this incredibly important message. And Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand on my watchtower. When I don't understand, when I'm confused, when I'm looking out and I'm seeing this incredible, cruel nation, and you can read about this nation in chapter 1, horrible, horrible nation, when I hear about them, I'm going to look for the messenger. What messenger? I'm going to look for a message. I want you to come explain this to me, God. How could this be? Because God... Seeing Habakkuk willing to hear, willing to listen, begins to break his silence and begins to explain to him what's happening in his world. He explains, that I'm going to do a thing in your time that you would not believe even if I told you. And that verse is constantly taken out of context. I heard it two weeks ago in a big Bible conference where it was used as the entire text of a sermon to say this was all positive. 
God says to you and me, Christians, I'm going to do a thing in your time you're not going to believe even if I were told you. I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to keep you healthy. I'm going to answer your prayers. It's nothing to do with that. Do you know what the thing is that God is now going to tell Habakkuk? I'm going to do a thing in your time that is so terrible. You're not even going to believe when I've told you. The Babylonians are coming. Look at Habakkuk 1. God tells him what's going to happen. And Habakkuk says, you're going to use them. You're going to use the Babylonians to subjugate us, to wipe us off the map, to punish us for our apostasy. You're going to use them. That's what we'd say. It's so out of our orbit. This was a very difficult message. Who was going to believe it? Habakkuk had to tell it. That was his burden, to tell them the truth. What happens in us is just as important to God as what happens outside of us. And God is working with his prophet. You read all the prophets, especially the minor prophets, and especially any that have a little bit of story about the man who is the prophet. And you'll see that God is concerned with the prophet as well as what the prophet is doing to the people God is sending him to, like Jonah. God was just as concerned about his mad prophet sitting under the tree, <laughs> miffed that Nineveh had had a revival, just as concerned about his anger and his confusion and his, what do you mean Nineveh's going to be in heaven like I am? What do you mean you've forgiven them? Confused, worried, and God says, the whole chapter 4, read it. He's, he's just as concerned about this angry prophet who is doing what Habakkuk's saying. I don't understand a good God using evil to bring his means to an end. I don't understand it. You would use them to do this? I remember asking my grandfather at the beginning of World War, as I listened to Churchill tell us we are now at war. We declared war on Germany because they marched into Poland and we had a treaty with Poland that both of us would come to each other's aid. So UK, as the Nazis overran Poland, first place they began, UK with no planes and no army and no bombs and no guns and nothing declared war on Nazi Germany. And that declaration I remember as a six-year-old listening to on our little radio, no TV in those days. And I looked at my grandfather who lived with us, and his face looked very grave. And I said, what does it mean, Grandpa? And he said, they're persecuting the Jews. We'll win. Well, of course, I was six. I had absolutely no idea what all this was about. And I said, well, why? And he said, they're God's people, Jill. And all down the ages, everybody that's persecuted the Jews, they have been judged and overthrown in the end. And then he said, it'll be a long struggle. And probably we will not survive. And possibly England will go down with the rest of Europe. But we'll win. And I never forgot that. And that's what God said to Habakkuk. 
in my inscrutable plan, in my sovereign plan, I am going to use Babylon in the strangest way to bring my people back and have a remnant left to work with for the future. But I will punish Babylon. Now Habakkuk, not in your day. For this revelation belongs to the end. We don't know which end. It's a prophecy. Certainly God did punish Babylon in biblical history. But certainly it's a bigger picture, perhaps of spiritual Babylon. And just before Jesus comes back, God will punish Babylon for what Babylon has done to the Church of Christ. We don't know. But we do know this that it is not ours to judge or question the purposes of God and how he gets where he is going. And so Habakkuk is torn to shreds. What do you mean? They're going to wipe us off the map. How can I tell? The remnant, this, how can I do this? And God leans out of heaven, and in chapter 3, he just shows himself. It's a transfiguration. He has a theophany. A theophany, in terms theological, is a self-revelation of God. He just says, look at me. It's the same in Job. Job is struggling with good and evil. And why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good people do bad things? All of that stuff. Like Asaph is in Psalm 73. I didn't understand when I saw the wicked overcoming good until I went into the temple of God and you showed me, not the answer, you showed me you. And what we need to do when we're confused, what we need to do when we stand in countries where the most terrible, terrible things are happening to the people of God and it seems to be that the devil is running all over the world and having his own way, is stand on our high tower. And ask our questions. And hear perhaps God say, uh, don't worry about it. One day, they'll be punished for what they're doing to my people. But in this part of history, I'm working my purposes out even in Babylon. And with Babylon. It's hard to get your heart round. It's hard to get your mind round but it needs to be done. And so in chapter 3, Habakkuk sees God. And you know when you're confused and you wonder, why is evil in my family? Why is evil in my life? When I sit so many times and hear stories that just break your heart, and I think, how is it that the devil's winning this or has won this? How could you let this happen, God? This is a wonderful, wonderful place to go. And I can always encourage people or take them with me to stand on our high tower and ask the message to tell us. Just give us theology to hold on to. What do we do if we are called to be a Habakkuk and live in a very dark place until the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? That's a verse from here. How are we going to do it? And the secret and the key verse, of course, of Habakkuk is in chapter 2. The just shall live by faith. We read that in Romans. 
It is a reference to Habakkuk chapter 2, the just. What are you going to do? How are you going to do this? You're going to live by faith. You're going to trust. You're going to lean, Habakkuk. As I so often say, lean, folks. He won't fall over. How are you going to survive if God has given you the calling and the burden to live through a very dark time in your personal life, in your church life, in your country's life, in your world? How are you going to do it? You're going to live by faith. You're going to learn trust. You're going to learn faith. You're going to say, you are God. I can trust you. It looks so confusing. I, I don't have answers. I don't have answers for the people that say, okay, where's your God? What's he doing? I watched on the TV as this hurricane hit and the very harsh questioning I felt some of God's people were given. They were given a chance and I was on my knees in front of the TV. I didn't care who was up there. I didn't care what denomination they came from. I didn't care what their reputation was. They had been asked to answer for God. And some of those reporters, one of them particularly, I didn't like his way and I didn't like his manner at all and I got on my knees and I prayed for the man that had to answer those questions. And the reporter said to him, so what are you going to say to your people in church, pastor, this Sunday? What are you going to tell them about God? It was his storm. He just wiped out a thousand people, you know, and drowned them in their beds in, the, in this nursing home. So what are you going to say about God? And I believe God gave wisdom beyond every single person that was asked that question. Franklin Graham was asked it, Anne Graham Lotz was asked it, on television, on national television, and many other pastors. Pastors that perhaps we would take issue with, theologically, but I tell you, they gave great answers. Great answers. And basically, they did point out, well, people are saying it was the sin that was going on there but there were also over 100 churches wiped out and God's people, <laughs> along with the people we might think were sinful or doing wrong things. So what do you think about that, Mr. Reporter? And I saw one reporter really caught up in this as he began to think, and he said back to the pastor, yeah, so both the good and the bad got killed, right? Right. What are you going to say about that, pastor? And he got his attention and began to walk him through some of the huge unanswerable questions. Why does God allow suffering? But was able to say, as Habak was able to say, listen, whatever the why is, let me tell you how you and I are going to survive this. We're going to live by faith. We're going to trust the God who's a good God will do the right thing in the end. And one day he'll sit us down and say, let me explain this to you. Our little dust minds are so tiny. There's no way we can put our minds around this thing. And he comes into chapter 3, and he says, after seeing God, seeing God in his mightiness, and you can read that theophany and how God appeared to him in his vision or dream, or in reality, we don't know what it's like to have God show us little human beings himself in all his raw spiritness. How can we know this? He does his best with the language here. And he says, when I saw this, I heard my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, 16 of three. Decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled. Yes, I will patiently wait for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though 
So what am I going to do? I'm going to live by faith. What does that mean? Okay, though the fig tree does not bud. A fig tree takes about 100 years to get figs. It means it's been there a long time. It means you've lived in the country forever. It means you're safe. It means you're prosperous. And under the fig tree is the family, every man under his vine and fig tree. And it is a picture of prosperity and safety and security and blessing. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, though I lose my home in flood or war or whatever, though I'm burnt at the stake, though my family isn't prosperous, though I lose my job, yet will I rejoice. How am I going to do that? I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to stand on my high tower. I'm going to ask the questions I need to and accept the answers that I get. I'm going to build a high tower in my life. I'm going to build faith into my life. Though the fig tree does not bud, security. Could you say before you go out, though I don't know what security is, though I have no idea what's facing me, money-wise, security-wise, yet will I rejoice because I'm going to trust, I'm going to lean on God. Though no grapes on the vine. The vine, I love this. You know there's a verse in the scripture that says, thy wife shall be like a fruitful vine by the side of thy house, and thy children like olive plants around thy table. Mark this picture. Doesn't mean the wife is climbing the walls. <laughs> the wife shall be like a fruitful vine. It's the same picture of happiness, of joy in your relationships, and the little olive plants sitting having their cornflakes around the table. <laughs> Wonderful picture. And he says, and though the olive plants fail, happens if your kids fail. Happens if they go with the peers, and they get into drugs, and a policeman comes to your door at 11 at night, says your kid's just killed somebody, he's drunk driving. What are you going to do? Though the olive plant fails, yet will not I. And you have to come, if you are a parent, to the point of saying, they might not go on with you, they might not love you, they might fail, the olive crop might fail, but I'm not going to. And I'm not going to let them take me down with them. That was one of the hardest places of my life. My kids were in their teenage years. Just ordinary teenage problems, normal teenage problems, and I became panic-stricken with fear that they would not love Jesus and follow him. I just became obsessed with it. And I remember kneeling at my bed and saying, okay, 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 I've got it, I've got it. Though the olive crop might fail, I won't. I'll love you. I'll serve you. Though my heart is broken, though my dreams have gone, I'll do it. I'll rejoice in you, I'll trust, I'll lean, I'll live by faith. If they live by faith or they don't live by faith, I will. And you have to let that go. You have to come to that point. Doesn't mean you don't put your heart and soul and energy and your life into your kids and seeing them love Jesus. Of course not. But what if they fail? What's that going to do to you? 
You're going to drop out of serving? Are you going to say, I just need a year out to regroup? How can I serve God when my kids have failed? What's that got to do with it? What's that got to do with your relationship with God? What's that got to do with your calling and your burden? Yet, well, not I, he says. Count on me? That's living one mile high. Though the olive crop fails, or the wife, or the security, or the husband, yet will not I. No sheep in the fold, you're going back to your ministry, and since you've been here in one weekend, everybody's left your Bible study. <laughs> How could this happen? I was only away three days. So what are you going to do if you fail with all your wonderful heart plans you've collected here? What are you going to do? Are you going to just sit down and die? Are you going to quit? Are you going to listen to the coach? No sheep in the fold. No donkey in the stall. I love this little picture. You could come to the temple and give sacrifices and they would kill them and give you back something to eat and all of that. But there was one sacrifice that was accepted because it was needed and it was called a living sacrifice and it was a donkey. Donkeys were given huge expense to a family. If you gave a donkey, it's like giving a you know, Rolls Royce. It's all sorts of things. It was their transport. It was the thing that hauled stuff around the fields. They gave their living sacrifice, the donkey, to the temple. And it bore the burdens in the temple. It did the donkey work. Okay, let's apply it. You feel as though you're on your own. I'm nobody to help me. Poor little me. Can't get volunteers. <laughs> I'm always finished. Everybody's gone. They have to go home and look after their kids. I've got kids. Nobody thinks of that. And there's nobody doing the donkey work. You're doing it all. You're doing all the other stuff and the donkey work. Okay, listen to me. Though there is no donkey in the stall, I'll do it. So what? I'll stay till midnight. I'll put in the extra hours. Even when nobody's looking to watch. Except God. No donkey in the stall. Yet will I rejoice. I'll do it with joy. It's not about the success of my event. I'll get on with it. How do I live one mile high? You turn your eyes to the hills. You stay on your high tower listening to the messages from the scriptures from God that he will send you. You take time. You invest your life. You go to the deep place. You do not need a mentor. Jesus is your mentor. God is your mentor. Now, you might need somebody to mentor you into how that works, and then they're done. And then you go and mentor someone else into how they can go to their high tower, how they can hear God's voice in the deep place where nobody goes and sit on the steps and talk to God. You see, that's what mentoring's supposed to be. But God is our mentor. How do we help? How do we bring them into the fullness of that? That's our job. That's our burden. That's what we're called to do. I live one mile high, and somehow I explain how that happens to somebody watching me live one mile high. That's how it happens. 
And that's how it works. We turn our eyes to the hills of faith. We ask God for the feet of a deer, fleet feet. And then we pick our way on the heights. I have seen in Austria, I have seen in the Himalayas, I have seen in Tibet, mountain goats, in the most incredible places, on the highest peaks in the world. And somebody will say, take these glasses, Look at those goats. And it is an incredible miracle of God how they leap from one place to another. Sure-footed. God did that for those goats. And God says, I will give you the feet of a deer to pick your way on the impossible peaks. And you will find that the low places of your life turn into the high places of your experience of God. God will give you hinds feet in high places. Yes, he will. And he'll help you walk surely. You won't slip. You won't fall. And you'll live one mile high. For the sovereign Lord is my strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God says my grace is sufficient for thee, etc., etc. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Fleet feet, grace, alacrity, swift, sure-footedness. He'll set you on your high places, which will be the low places of life, strangely. I don't think I've ever felt closer to God than in a low place. And he's lifted me one mile high and inside, in my spirit. And as I've done my part, as I've waited for the messenger to explain what I need to know, and then I've accepted that, even if it's bad news, I remember once standing on that high tower waiting for God to give me the message and when it came it was as bad as the Babylonians are coming. And I needed to accept it and say okay. Thank you for telling me what's ahead. It's all bad but thank you for telling me. This isn't going to get better. This isn't going to change. This is where I will probably live for the rest of my days. Now then how do I do it? You live by faith. You stand on your tower. You listen to the messenger. That's how you do it. And you lean on me and you trust me. And God says, I will show you myself. And that will be enough. Day after day, God will show you himself. What more do you want? What more do you need? Nothing. And he'll make your feet like the feet of a deer. Early in the morning, as day was dawning, I read in Habakkuk. I was glad to arrive at the end of the book. It was so sad. And it talked of pain and sorrow, tears and war. But there, in the end of the prophecy, I found a song of joy crowning the prophet's psalm of sorrow. And seeing it was early, I went to the deep place. I waited in the mellow mists of morning to talk to him about it. Habakkuk was my friend, he said quietly. And I thought I knew why. I think Habakkuk pictured you as the hind of the morning, I commented. That's a lovely picture of you, Lord. And we were quiet, thinking of how at Calvary, the lion got the hind. And I thought of how the devil ripped the hind to shreds, and I shuddered. But on Easter morning, I got the lion, he said. And then we laughed. And time stood still, and all the trees of the field clapped their hands. Oh, dear one, more precious to me than any other, help me to be like you. 
a hind, sure-footed on high ground, I pled. And I thought of the challenges that awaited me. Today, I could lose a friend and even make an enemy for life. Today, I must confront wrongdoing, be misunderstood, play peacemaker. I didn't like this part of the mountain climb. I didn't like this part of ministry. Well, remember the low places of life are really the high places of spiritual experience, he reminded me. Well then, O heavenly hind of the morning today, when I find myself picking my way among the rocks and crags, trying to keep my feet and not fall down, help me to keep my balance. I'll give you hind's feet in high places if you ask me to, he replied quietly. I will enable you to go on the heights. And then we were walking together in the shallow place where everyone lives, looking at the impossible crags on the mountainside, and they looked for all the world to me, like the dangerous difficulties of the day ahead of me. What a rocky road. So I asked him to help me. Go on the heights, just like he told me to. It's the best thing to do, you know. Pray with me, just shut your eyes. Heinz feet, Lord. Give me Heinz feet, like yours. You're the hind of the morning. Walk with me on the heights. Help me to jump, to leap over the crevices. You go first, show me how. Land me safely on sure ground. And give me a high view of scripture, of the purposes and promises of God. And give me a vision from the heights of worship, of the whole panorama of your will, and preserve me from the mountain lion that would terrorize me. Give me fleet feet when the lion comes, yet, and though he pounce and bring me down, help me to bear it well. And meet me on the other side of sorrow in a new place, in a new race, in a new age, on a new page of eternal history. And until then, O oh, heavenly hind of the morning, talk to me often about the dawn of that new day when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Toughen me, Lord, tenderly, and give me hind speed. In Jesus' name, amen.